Hi, and welcome to Hell of Presidents. I'm Chris Wade. I'm Matt Chrisman. And this is episode 12. I've got an invisible bridge to sell you. I have learned already in this office that the difficult decisions always come to this desk. I must admit it's September 8th, 1974, and Gerald Ford is on TV, issuing a pardon of Richard Nixon for all crimes he may have committed as president. Nixon had resigned less than a month earlier, and Ford, the only president to assume the role without being voted on as either president or vice president on a ballot, framed his pardon as a necessary step to restore faith in government. So this was a classic example of somebody uh, trying to uh, do what's best for the country in their own mind. I, re- I really do believe that at this point, these guys are operating out of out of a real belief in, in the nostrums of democratic governance because they grew up in like the, 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 the hearth, you know, like they grew up, they were shaped by a certain relationship between people and governing institutions that was imbued with meaning. And so he probably mm-hmm. thought, I am restoring normalcy. I am healing the nation's wounds. Uh, but in so doing, he just puts this monstrous, violent capper on the trauma of Watergate by uh, reassuring the country that no matter what crimes you commit in office, that you will never be held legally accountable for them. And and that, that Ford is out representing a system covering its own ass. And then that, that cynicism just... Uh, echoes through the decade. Uh, and the reason that that response was so visceral and widely felt is that it was correct. That's exactly what happened. Ford <laughs> sets a precedent here, a legal precedent for the newly empowered president of the post-war era who can do things no previous president could possibly have gotten away with, now reassured that whatever they do, as long as it's in the interests uh, of the rulers, the real governing class, then they are uh, not going to receive uh, any legal sanction for anything they do in office. We start here then as a moment that defines what the following president would characterize as a crisis of confidence among Americans, in part a sense that through deceit, mismanagement, and outright crime, their government and its chief executive had failed them. And while Jimmy Carter would phrase that as a kind of spiritual crisis to be healed between the president and the people, that's a tough sell as conditions only deteriorate. Through this era, we see a deep material crisis developing as the triumphant gains made by democratizing the New Deal into the great society give way to stagnation, malaise, and endless unpopular war, general feeling of power, corruption, and lies. But first... Johnson needs to succeed before Nixon, Ford, and Carter can fail. It's a long road from the New Deal to conservative revolution, but here we are in the final stretch. Pay the toll and cross the invisible bridge. So we left off last week with Johnson winning his own term. He had campaigned on the Great Society, a sweeping set of domestic policies aimed primarily at reducing poverty and expanding civil liberties. 
and armed not only with this agenda, but huge Democratic majorities in both houses and the soaring heights of American prosperity, Johnson was provided an incredible window for reforms. We're going to get more into these in detail, but here's just a laundry list of his accomplishments, mainly in the first two years of his term. The Voting Rights Act, Economic Opportunity Act, programs like food stamps and Head Start, creation of Medicare and Medicaid, Elementary and Secondary Education Act that provided money for public schools, the Higher Education Act funding and grants for low-income students for colleges, the Gun Control Act, the National Endowments for the Arts and Humanities, fucking PBS and NPR. Damn, sounds like a great society to me. (laughs) But... There's always a catch, a constraint with these things. So what uh, Johnson is trying to quarterback through into history here uh, uh, in this new moment when the, the New Deal coalition, uh, shorn of the radicalism that had been powered it through World War II, uh, thoroughly capitalist, thoroughly captured by uh, the interests of like a, a self-aware working middle strata of America, homeowners and aspiring homeowners – who identified the Democratic Party with their interests. Uh, and what they were cooking up was an attempt to create, uh, through utilization of democratic structures within capitalism, a democratic control of the mechanisms of capitalism that would allow for the creation of the uh, utopian end state Marx envisioned out coming after uh, a socialist revolution without the horror and violence and uh, material uh, discomfort of a social revolution. Uh, it would be the triumph of uh, Americans as a national class over capitalism. Uh, that's like the, that was, you know, without everybody maybe thinking that was what they were doing. That was the dream that they were all perceiving a classless society without class war. Uh, and this dream this this aspiration was only possible uh in the context of the capitalist super profits that were uh undergirding the american uh led global economic system at that point this is as we were talking about this is that window after world war ii when america is the headquarters the 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 uh workshop and the shopping mall of the world economy (laughs) drawing everything towards itself uh, uh and in so doing creating a situation where profits could be distributed downward democratically from uh, the uh, owner to the labor share. But what was not understood was that in so doing, in creating the system, they were also creating a global system that over time would catch up essentially to American mm-hmm. development, equalize uh, uh, industry and and reduce uh, the profits at the heart of the system. But that was too far below uh, reality for people to really perceive. They were, they were true believers. They believed that the, the moment had come when rational enlightenment, liberal mastery uh, of the public sphere and of, of the human spirit would allow us to, uh, to actually control the machinery of capitalism. Uh, and it was driven from below by a wide range of social movements that were erupting in response to the changing conditions. It was managed from above by the Democratic Party and labor union leadership. And it was directed by the bureaucracy that had been created by all of this uh, class churn uh, through the uh, the post-New Deal era. Now, this was whole process was riven with contradictions because people are pursuing what they think is a public good. But that public good concept has been filtered through the interests of the most powerful stakeholders, 
which meant that uh, at the end of the day, the the democratic outcome was estranged away uh, to private ownership. Uh, and all of this based on a military go- economy that by definition could not uh, sustain itself because eventually a buildup must be discharged. Uh, and those are the contradictions that are going to erupt over the course of the 60s. But in its immediate uh, policy result, uh, this attempt to create a great society or the first step towards one did drastically cut co- poverty in this country. Like it had a direct and, and, and sustained effect on poverty levels in this country. Uh, and it did uh, operate as like an eco- a, a robust economic engine uh, for urban growth and things like that. Uh, the, the explosion of, uh, edu- of all kinds of social infrastructure, uh, but a lot of it, because of those contradictions, setting up future uh, disasters in the form of urban renewal that prioritized uh, automobiles over public mm-hmm. transportation and the, uh, uh, a housing policy that uh, encouraged suburbanization and sprawl over concentrations of uh, useful social uh, infrastructure. And that's going to end up coming together to, uh, to create the crisis that a future uh, economic and social s- structure will have to deal with. And the most lasting uh, structural contribution to American democracy that is made by this push towards a great society, because many of the, the economic gains have been lost over the years. Uh, one thing that was established through the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act and uh, the public, the federal push against segregation was that it did at a fundamental level reorient the relationship between black Americans and the state. Now, of course, it was not a full equalization of rights. That would have required redistribution of uh, of surplus towards all of these people who had been <laughs> systematically d- deprived. Uh, but the formal uh, entry of, of mass black voting participation in the South did change the equation of power as it was expressed through our political institutions, because now these new voters were able to express themselves in the political structure, give themselves a voice in a way that they had not before. And that is a, 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 the most lasting and enduring of the real re- impacts of uh, the, this moment in time. So at home, we have Johnson shepherding the great society through his huge Democratic majorities in Congress. But abroad, we have Vietnam. When Johnson took office, the U.S. had a relatively limited commitment in Vietnam, starting with a few hundred military advisors under Eisenhower, then some 16,000 military personnel under Kennedy. This all followed from the policy of containment, attempting to prevent the spread of communism from North Vietnam. Johnson was initially noncommittal until the Gulf of Tonkin incident in 1964. Not wanting to appear weak in the face of the uber-hawk Goldwater during the 1964 election, Johnson sought authorization to commit more troops to Vietnam from the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution in August 1964. And from there, we get uh, a whole peck of trouble. Uh, (laughs) And it is uh, the result, the the immediate uh, result of uh, LBJ's insecurity. 
the early Vietnam policy truly is shaped around the fact that you have a president in the office who uh, has vast experience uh, on the legislative domestic side of politics, relatively unschooled in, in foreign policy, surrounded by people with much uh, more advanced degrees, people who did not go to uh, Southwestern State Teachers College, uh, uh, and he felt that insecurity. He also felt the need to assert anti-communist bona fides in the face of the right-wing reaction that was coalescing to both integration uh, and the great society. Uh, and those forces sort of pushed Johnson in a direction that I think some people uh, imagine that Kennedy would have been able to resist because of his deeper le uh, level of security. By the, by the time he died, John F. Kennedy, although he hadn't been terribly experienced before becoming president, had had enough intense experience with the, uh, the greatest minds uh, of the foreign policy sector to know that they were mostly full of shit. Uh, and that if he'd listened to them, for example, during the Bay of Pigs invasion, everyone on Earth would have been fucking nuked. <laughs> but one way or the other, Johnson was sort of in the opposite position as presidency. And he um, was driven to escalate by a desire to maintain this position of strength domestically and internationally. But there's also the reality of how the Cold War had unfolded until that point. Uh, the United States continued operating as a war economy after World War II. Uh, but the war was undeclared. But that doesn't mean that there weren't battlefields. It's just that the United States, for the most part, kept their uh, particular soldiers' boots off the ground. They were happy to use proxies uh, through uh, support of dictatorships, uh, the funding of military coups, uh, the carrying out of clandestine assassinations. Uh, and they were mostly very successful in Guatemala and in, uh, in Iran. Uh, and then even during um, Johnson's term, the fantastically successful CIA-aided uh, coup in Indonesia that led to the uh, mass uh, political genocide of the Communist Party there. Millions of people massacred uh, to prevent the leftward drift of the Suharto regime. And uh, less noisily, but uh, equally successfully, the, the Gladio military coup in Greece. Those happened during... Uh, Johnson's term. Also, there were some limited police actions, such as the invasion of uh, that the U.S. carried out of uh, the Dominican Republic in Johnson's term. But Vietnam, because of the uh, stubborn resistance of the, the North Vietnamese uh, communist movement, its ability to uh, maintain a, a geographic base in the north there that, that uh, could not sustain reabsorption into the French colonial system after World War II. The fact that they were uh, able to assert power uh, into South Vietnam the way they were uh, and energize like a, a vast local guerrilla movement, it, it, it created an actual a military target for all that American hardware, which had to be used somewhere eventually. That's the thing about the post-war uh, uh our military Keynesian state. You can only build up so much before you have to release because it's just sitting there. It must be destroyed. It must eventually be used. Uh, and that logic more than is what like was driving us towards some sort of Cold War confrontation, which it got the form it did because of Johnson's agonized political uh, thrashings. Uh, he, he, was feckless in his Vietnam policy. He was always doing half measures uh, because he was afraid of aggravating the Soviets, uh, but also because at the end of the day, he just didn't understand why he couldn't make a deal 
with the North. He once offered Ho Chi Minh an American-funded Tennessee Valley Authority-style uh, uh, Marshall Plan loan to build hydropower in North Vietnam in exchanging in exchange for leaving the South alone. And he just couldn't understand why that wouldn't. Well, who wouldn't say no to that? <laughs> because he did not understand it. And many most Americans didn't the nature of an actual an actual like nationally grounded communist uh, movement like it, it has powers beyond your capacity to make a deal. It's not based on the the hedonic exchange of American citizenship that is dependent upon uh, access to 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 comforts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as such, it's uh, resistant to your entreaties. Uh, and we are left with the the American military being drawn into this confrontation that no matter what it does on the battlefield, it is it loses in its momentum and morale and coherence of action and purpose. Uh, all of this directed by a person who was a master of wielding power, but only through the machinery of uh, America's particular kabuki political structure. <laughs> uh, and so he was at sea on these questions of power that transcended uh, the transactional. Johnson's term, and especially Vietnam, also see the rise of a new demographic of social pressure in the youth movement. It's the hippies, the yippies, the weathermen, the SDS, a loose movement of anti-establishment ideologies, aesthetics, and actions among the youth who grew up in the post-World War II suburban baby boom. As these children came of age, were moved by, and were participants within the civil rights movement, the political expression of youth teens and college-age students as a coherent political block began to be expressed fully now. And of course, this is what creates one of the most lasting cultural memories of the 60s. (laughs) What is your favorite, uh, just parenthetically, what's your favorite on-the-nose 60s um, needle drop? Uh, You know, I was just thinking about this. I think it's got to be time of the season, uh, just because I think the the mouth sounds... And then plus, I think, uh, what's your name? What's your name? Who's your daddy? Who's your daddy? Is he rich like me? Is yeah. one of the op- best opening like uh, swagger lines of, yeah. uh, of any song. That, that's a very good one. Yeah. I think I got to just go with like a, just my instinct was uh, all along the watchtower. That's always great. I mean, we're going to put all the put all these in here. So just so you remember, hey, it's the 60s. Yeah. Guys, it's the 60s. It's 60s, man. It's my happening and it's freaking me out. <laughs> so Youth in Revolt is the 1960s. So we had this uh, social peace that had been, been, been imposed after World War II, uh, w- which exchanged control over the conditions of labor in America for uh, the uh, promise of continued comforts, uh, conveniences, and reduced amount of labor having to be done. Uh, and, and and higher compensatory wages. Now, for the generation that has survived World War, uh, the Depression and World War II had come out of the end of that 20-year 20, 20 meat grinder, that was a great deal. It was, it, was, it was a deal that made a lot of sense to a lot of people. But their kids growing up in just the cradle of suburban splendor, uh, they took all that peace and uh, prosperity shit for granted. And as well, they should have. It was a crummy deal. It was a (laughs) debauched and soulless fucking deal. Uh, There was, if we were uh, citizens of this country, we have a responsibility to try to get a fucking better deal. And so we should try to do it. 
Like they saw the Keynesian state, this this machine for dispensing treats uh, as an alienation <laughs> factory. But the problem was, is that they could only act as individuals because this is these are not members of any sort of self-conscious, politically uh, active working class. These are the children, perhaps of working class people, but also the people, the children of professional class, whatever you want to call it. All these new, uh, uh, more ambiguous relationships with capitalism, uh, even the children of uh you know, like factory workers are still not living the lives that their parents did at that age. And it, they did not have an alienated relationship to labor that their parents did. Uh, and most of them were expected to now take the uh, upward mobility train to uh, college, even if they did come from working class backgrounds. Yeah, I like this. Uh, I, I found this uh, Nicholas von Hoffman quote in the yes. Washington Post just describing the youth movement. The condition of youth has changed in important ways. College is no longer a voluntary business. You go off to college or you go off to war. You get your degree or you resign yourself to a life of low paying jobs. Yep. Yeah, it's either the drudgery of uh, of work uh, as a member of the of the laboring classes, or it's the the spiritual hollowness of uh, pursuing life as a professional in college, wearing a suit, being a one dimensional man, man. <laughs> and they recognize this as a spiritual hollowing, but unfortunately, they could not operate as a uh, coherent class response or re- uh, resistance, because many of the people doing the actual labor in this country uh, had not had those experiences did not have the same relationship to America's institutions, uh, and as such did not share their particular cultural expression of resistance, uh, and so could not be turned into a coalition partner. Um, and not to mention the fact that the actual political cultural expressions of the working class had been essentially housebroken uh, mm-hmm. by by the counter-revolution of the late 40s uh, that that brought the regime of Taft-Hartley and uh, sort of the post-communist labor movement into existence. Uh, The members of that, uh, by now, 20 years dead labor movement uh, are culturally alienated from the youth and have largely accepted the uh, deal as it had been presented, even though, of course, by now it's starting to get a little shaggy, even for the people who had benefited from it. Uh, And this begins the process whereby uh, the clash, the conflict that powers political uh, disagreement in this country goes from being uh, a question of class power to being one of cultural power uh, because there is this youth movement to change uh, all that they can, which because they're not operating uh, as a class becomes a cultural movement. Now, at the same time this is happening, the breakdown of racial segregation uh, and the raised hopes associated with this create a cycle of uh, massive passive resistance to segregation and and uh, and racism, and then also uh, urban riots that explode out of the failure uh, of the newly empowered uh, uh, black community, now politically active, to actually affect the change of their living conditions in places where they're most uh, uh, most dire. And this is happening concurrently with the youth movement. The causes are coming together in many respects, and they are raising the anxieties of racist white homeowners, regardless of what that job they do. Uh, and their, their identity as white homeowners becomes much more central to their politics than their identity as a, a steel worker or, a, or an auto worker. It becomes more relevant to them because it's what politics is now, because mm-hmm. The questions of labor power have been solved. Uh, 
And the important thing to note is that all of this massive uh, political destabilization that's to come uh, is in the context of a booming economy and mm-hmm. rapidly dropping poverty. So th- this entire five-year stretch of Johnson's presidency, which is remembered as one of the most convulsive in U.S. history socially, is also one of the most uh, economically prosperous times in American history with the most booming economy, with with bo- a booming economy and falling poverty, uh, showing that uh, – even with the machine, the Keynesian machine working at its best to redistribute the, the spoils of this world uh, capitalist empire, uh, it is still creating massive social uh, crisis that are challenging the very structures of the machine itself. So as Matt just said, even with booming economic prosperity, we see increasing public outcry against the war, plummeting approval ratings, civil unrest, and slowly evaporating will for further great society reforms. And in March of 1968, Lyndon B. Johnson declares, I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. And then he uh, retired and grew a fucking mullet. I don't know if you've ever he spent the last few he died very short he died by the uh in the early 70s uh he spent the rest of his life sitting on his porch in uh Texas talking to Doris Kurtz Goodwin and growing an amazing mullet the first presidential mullet uh since Polk I believe he looks like Gene Hackman playing a character yes but anyway so long to Johnson on to Richard Milhouse Nixon was born in Yorba Linda California on January 9th 1913. His parents were Quakers, and after his father's ranch failed in 1922, the family moved to Whittier, California, where his father owned a gas station. Richard was a hardworking kid and good student, helping work the family business in the mornings, receiving excellent grades at Whittier High School, and participating on the debate team as well. Though he had a chance to attend Harvard, his family needed his help at home, and so he enrolled in Whittier College. At Whittier, Nixon was snubbed by the fancy lad members of the student societies. So he created his own society, the Orthogonian Society. You know, like orthogonal being at right angles with things. Very, very clever, young Nixon. Richard would then be accepted to Duke University Law School. Uh, new and less prestigious than the Ivy League schools, but he would receive scholarship and graduate third in his class. Nixon returned to Whittier and became a practicing lawyer and soon met his wife, Pat, in a community theater production, which is very cute to imagine about Richard Nixon. Another uh, famous bit of uh, Nixon-Pat lore is that uh, he asked her out a bunch of times and she said no. And he was so patient uh, and so dogged about not giving up that he volunteered to chauffeur her on a date with another guy. Oh, man. I mean, kudos for Nixon for being one of the very few people to actually enter the friend zone and then make it successfully out of it. Honestly, yes. Uh, He and Pat moved to D.C. in 1942, and Nixon enrolled in the Naval Reserve. During World War II, Nixon had a number of naval assignments, mostly logistical and managing contracts, but served well and received several merits and promotions. After the war, Nixon was actively recruited by a family friend who is part of a group of influential Whittier Republicans to run for Congress back in California. Nixon accepted, campaigned enthusiastically, and unseated his opponent in 1946. In Congress, Nixon was a prominent anti-communist crusader, a member of the House Un-American Activities Committee, and one of the core leaders of the House prosecution of Alger Hiss. 
Nixon then ran for Senate in 1950, successfully smearing his opponent as a communist sympathizer. He said her name was Helen Gahagan Douglas, and he said of her that she was pink down to her underwear. Oh, uh, well, he won that race by 20 points and then earned the name Tricky Dick through his campaign uh, smears and tactics. And then two years later, we find Nixon again where we found him at the beginning of last week's episode, scheming his way onto the Eisenhower ticket, becoming vice president that year. So last week I talked about the uh, growing right-wing response to this New Deal concept of government that comes from small capitalist manufacturers, uh, franchisers uh, in the hinterlands. Uh, and those do those guys are the first big funders and activists on the new right. But the, the below them, the people who made up their voters uh, were guys like Richard Nixon's dad, uh, precarious small business people uh, who saw the government project of national redistribution not as this uh, glorious grasp for democratic control of uh, of production, but as a conspiracy uh, by power. Uh, to uh, rob smallholders, the last remaining uh, Jeffersonian holdouts in America of their uh, freedom and autonomy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Nixon comes out of this context, just the raging resentful id of this this white smallholder class. Uh, and it's a politics that is p- fueled by resentment because – uh, you believe that America is giving you and you witness America give you these unprecedented vehicles for upward mobility uh, and enrichment, uh, but at the cost of living under this rule of far off social uh, elite economic elites who are, uh, in your mind, both competitors for uh, and dominators of uh, the market uh, and for a certain type of guy, you know, it's kind of hard to enjoy the Packard in the driveway and the TV dinner, knowing that <laughs> all of it is at the uh, that it's entirely at the whim of New York intellectuals who, you know, look down on you for enjoying the life that you have. Uh, and Nixon understood that feeling. He under he felt it every day, the burning resentment on his skin of being able to assert a will to power, to be able to uh, advance in the a capitalist system, but always with the eyes, the judging eyes of these elites on them. Uh, And Nixon is driven uh, to assert control over a system that he is empowered by, but also feels scorned and judged by because of his deep uh, soul sickness and insecurity. The same thing that powered Johnson. It's really amazing that we got those guys back to back. And it makes sense, too, because it's American American presidency at the apogee of its power. This is when the American presidency could is a actual place for actual power to be actually asserted on a planetary level. And it's not a really it's it's not a cosmic coincidence that the guys we got at that moment were just these soul sick, hungry ghosts searching <laughs> for some sort of validation. Johnson Johnson wanting it by uplifting those below him. Nixon, being the resentful little middle-class creep that he was, uh, by kicking down uh, to those below him and also uh, kicking up to those that he felt judged by uh, above him. And, you know, in a, in, when, you are, when you are operating without a context of class consciousness, the validation of your personal identity could be the only political project of real meaning. And it's the one that Nixon pursued with absolutely superhuman focus for his entire life. (laughs) 
And all of this operating, not just on ego, but on a conception of a national interest that is fully abstracted, but also deeply personalized. So we last left Nixon losing to one of those Eastern elites in the form of that pretty boy Kennedy in 1960. Nixon heads back home and resumes his law practice and then gets convinced by various Republicans to run for California governor against Pat Brown. Nixon loses that race badly, and that's where you get the classic, you won't have Nixon to kick around anymore because, gentlemen, this is my last press conference. Just think how much you're going to be missing. You don't have Nixon to kick around anymore. But Nixon lays in the cut. He goes back to practicing as a lawyer and, uh, just as an interesting tidbit, was in Dallas on November 22nd, 1963, at the American Bottlers of Carbonated Beverages Convention. There is an attorney working for the Pepsi-Cola Corporation. He was one of four U.S. presidents who would be in Dallas that day. Hmm. Hmm. At least he remembered he was there. Uh, George H.W. Yes. Bush plum forgot. Well, we'll get to George H.W. Bush. But... Nixon skipped 1964, and by 1968, sensing weakness in the Democratic coalition now torn apart by the Vietnam War, Nixon runs again. Matt, the 1968 presidential election. So uh, the new right has been challenging for power from the de- Republican establishment uh, for, throughout the 50s and 60s. Uh, they, the right gained uh, the power to nominate Goldwater in 64. They went down to defeat. But, you know, the social explosion of the of the 60s propelled uh, them uh, and intensified uh, their commitment to to seizing power. Uh, but without anybody to really hold the torch uh, on the right, uh, not yet anyway, Nixon, <laughs> a, a figure who was associated with the establishment wing of the party, uh, was able to form a, a bridge between the establishment and the base. Uh, he made a bunch of deals with uh, influential new rightists like Strom Thurmond, uh, and in so doing, uh, he was able to manage the, the the fissure much better than the Democrats were. The Democrats were uh, uh, breaking up like the goddamn Titanic uh, because the old uh, base of the party, uh, those newly middle class, newly homeowning uh, workers were not culturally simpatico with this new left that was made up of people who they saw as threats to an, an order that they benefited from. Uh, and as so the Democratic primary becomes a civil war between the left, first in the uh, form of uh, Eugene McCarthy, uh, whose uh, strong showing in the New Hampshire primary is what convinced Johnson not to seek a second term. Mm-hmm. Uh but then eventually coalescing around the more charismatic uh, form of Bobby Kennedy before he was shot uh, in the Ambassador Hotel after winning the California primary. Uh, an interesting case that, you know, somebody might want to look into at some point. <laughs> That's for a different podcast. Yeah. Um, but out, out of this uh, uh, convulsion, the same the same year that uh, Martin Luther King is assassinated and and you see a wave of, 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 of riots in the north, all of this inflecting into the Democratic primary until the 68 convention is a police riot against resistance to the imposition of Hubert Humphrey, a Johnson's VP and a guy who had supported Johnson's disastrous Vietnam policy all throughout uh, his term in office. Um was able to secure it on the backs of those old Patriots networks 
uh, controlled by people like Richard Daly from Chicago uh, and uh, where the institutional muscle of the Democratic Party was really to be found. Because at this point, remember, most delegates were not apportioned by the results of primaries. They Mm -hmm. were determined by state parties that were controlled by these political machines. And the race between Johnson, Nixon and uh, Humphrey is Humphrey defending a increasingly indefensible status quo, both domestically and in Vietnam, with Nixon proposing uh, a fix to both in the form of law and order and the reimposition of authority uh, uh, domestically and some sort of undefined peace with honor that he promised he could get uh, that uh, Johnson, that Humphrey couldn't get. And John and Humphrey was really uh, stuck trying to defend the status quo, uh, all on the backs of the AFL-CIO and the Sargento uh, cheese magnate family, <laughs> uh, who are, were essentially the only ones around to uh, organize for and and fund the Humphrey campaign. Uh, and it Humphrey was able to close a gap that was looking pretty considerable uh, in the very late going by finally breaking with Johnson on Vietnam. But it wasn't enough, uh, and Nixon wins in a in a squeaker. Yes. Nixon published in Reader's Digest, October 67, kind of defining his campaign, saying, Far from being a great society, ours is becoming a lawless society. In a civilized nation, no man can excuse his crime against the person or property of another by claiming that he, too, has been a victim of injustice. To tolerate that is to invite anarchy. I feel like that is a germ of a sentiment that will become more and more uh, prevalent in the right as time goes on. To hone in on the the LBJ and Humphrey thing is you had the scene of LBJ technically bowing out of the uh, the the DNC, but calling shots in from his ranch in Texas, saying, "No, you will not remove my Vietnam plank from the party platform." Uh, you know, big dicking it all the way from Texas to Chicago. He actually uh, Johnson planned for a minute to helicopter into the convention and claim the nomination by acclamation. Uh, and then the Soviets invaded Prague and he had to stay in Washington. So then he just had to yell at the TV. Uh, so, yeah, it's important to remember that while this campaign is happening and this um, uh, America's urban areas are exploding. Yeah, we we do have to mention that, uh, just by context that 1968 also saw this wave of urban violence affecting over 100 cities across the country as just part of this general sense with the assassinations of everything. Some sort of pernicious breakdown of all parts of society. Yeah. Uh, while this is happening, Johnson is just going insane in the White House, trying to end the war on his terms, trying to justify, even as he's living at his legacy, uh, f- flailing wildly. Humphrey was lashed to Johnson's policy for so long because Johnson kept threatening to endorse Nixon uh, <laughs> if if Humphrey didn't toe the line. Uh, and of course, the uh, the real painful bit here is that there was Johnson was committed to getting a agreement a peace treaty before he left and he got close he was making uh solid progress with the north vietnamese uh he was bringing along the south vietnamese government and then out of nowhere the south vietnamese pull out of the negotiations the reason for this is that uh richard nixon was using his back channel relationship with henry kissinger uh and uh the dragon lady Anne chenault to tell the South Vietnamese government to pull out of the treaty negotiations because Nixon promised to give them a better deal while he was in office. Uh, and they 
they went along with that and it torpedoed Johnson's efforts to um uh to end the war on his terms. The insane thing is that Johnson knew this happened from wiretaps. Uh but he kept it private because he felt it would have been too destabilizing to accuse your a uh, uh, political opponent of treason a couple weeks before a presidential election. <laughs> yes. And so then Nixon will get in office and uh he'll get to carry out his his secret plan to end the war that uh, he promised everyone was going to be so much better than anything that was on the table in 68. So in the end, the chaos, both at home and abroad, was just enough to sell Nixon's message of order, and he wins narrowly with a popular vote margin of just 0.7%, but comfortably in the Electoral College. Also defeated George Wallace, running as a third-party right-wing candidate on the American independence ticket with bombs away Curtis LeMay, the last... Third party candidate in American history uh, to secure any electoral votes. Curtis LeMay, one of the most genuinely psychopathic people in uh, American public life of all time. And that's really saying something. when you consider how close he was to world annihilating power for how long he was. It's genuinely chilling and amazing that we made it out of the fucking 60s. Yeah, I recommend uh, just doing some doing some some light reading on LeMay. He's he's a fascinating figure. Nixon was inaugurated on January 20th, 1969, saying the greatest honor history can bestow is the title of peacemaker. This honor now beckons America, the chance to help lead the world at last out of the valley of turmoil and onto that high ground of peace that man has dreamed of since the dawn of civilization. By the time Nixon takes office, the war in Vietnam was, in both fact and popular opinion, a complete quagmire. Hundreds of Americans were dying each week with no real exit in sight. Nixon had campaigned on peace with honor in Vietnam, though he had failed to release specifics on how he hoped to achieve it. Uh, we just outlined one way that had how he hoped to achieve it, by uh, torpedoing peace talks during the election. But how does President Nixon pursue his promise of peace in the Pacific? So Nixon decides... Uh, like a lot of people on uh, the outside of the Vietnam War to that point, that the problem had been that Johnson wouldn't take the damn gloves off. And so Nixon decides that his strategy to get a better deal, whatever that's going to look like, out of the Vietnamese, North Vietnamese would involve bombing the hell out of them. And so he starts ramping up campaigns of bombing in the North, also illegal activity uh, outside of uh, – <clears throat> Uh, uh, congressional authorization, like invading Cambodia, all of this designed to keep the Vietnamese at the t- at the table. Now, the question that is still, uh, I think, unresolved is: Did Nixon really think that he could get some sort of sustained peace that would have involved the long term preservation of the South Vietnamese government? And I don't know uh, if you can say definitively if that was true when he took office. But I think what is clear from uh, his actions in office is that he pretty quickly realized that a long-term South Vietnamese political project was doomed and that the United States was – the interests of the United States were to extract themselves from Vietnam uh, in the most favorable context for prestige uh, domestically and internationally to secure what has been called a decent interval between the withdrawal of American troops – uh, and the collapse uh, of the South Vietnamese government. Uh, and to do that, to get that PR victory, he was willing to uh, butcher 
uh, millions of people and in drunken sessions with Kissinger suggest even more horrifying crimes than they even did commit. Like <laughs> he, he mooted the idea of, of using a nuke. Uh, he mooted the idea of bombing the uh, dikes uh, that uh, held back the, the water in North Vietnam and, and completely flooding uh, their agricultural base to cause millions to die from starvation. Uh, he, he, he told Kissinger to think big, damn it. Uh, <laughs> but he was always talked down from the most extreme stuff because the Soviets were there and kicked the can down the road, transferred responsibility from American troops to Vietnamese, South Vietnamese troops, and eventually signs a deal before the end of his term uh, that is the same deal, in essence, that was on the table in 1968 and really like that makes Nixon one of the greatest criminals uh, of American presidents, regardless of anything else he did. Uh, and the only real question is when he was telling the South Vietnamese, I can get you better terms. Did he really believe that or uh, was he just completely full of shit? And uh, I don't think we'll ever know. Domestically, Nixon mostly continued great society programs, but on grounds of increasing economic uncertainty. So in his first term, we see the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, enacting the Clean Water Act and proposals for substantial health insurance reform. But all of this was in an environment of ballooning deficit, flagging economy, and most importantly, rising inflation. So, Matt, let's look at Nixon's domestic outlook. So, you know, we said that all this 60s uh, conflict is in the context of a booming economy. Well, just about as Nixon takes power, it starts to break up already. That, that's how short-lived this aperture of, of, of uh, imagined post-scarcity uh, capitalism that we were uh, operating from, uh, from the assumption of lasted before it started to crack up. Is 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 a few years basically, uh, and it very quickly started to break down, and Nixon was tasked with dealing with that. Uh, I think that if the the economic uh, conditions had sort of maintained their upward trajectory, Nixon would have been happy to allow the the state to sort of manage itself. Uh, he had very little interest in domestic policy. He described it as building outhouses in Peoria. Uh, <laughs> and that's the way that he is sort of the opposite of Johnson. Johnson fixated obsessively on domestic policy. Uh, and for Nixon, it didn't matter. Whatever ec economic engine was powering the economy was good enough for him. But it started to break down and he had to deal with that. Uh, and Nixon did, to his credit, see the writing on the wall here and recognize that America's Economic position, its preeminence as this sole superpower of this capitalist system, uh, was no longer uh, viable. That uh, a new multipolar world was emerging that would change the United States' relationship to other powers uh, and its economic foundations. Building up all those former allies so that they wouldn't be swallowed by the Soviets had given them their own industrial economies that were now in competition with the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was putting pressure on America's profits. That could not be made up internally. Uh, and Nixon saw the need to build a multipolar world where the U.S. could step down, essentially, from its position as chairman of the world board uh, <laughs> into a more uh, equalized relationship. That was the basis for opening China to create a trilateral negotiating structure between the Chinese, the United States, and Russia that would presage 
uh, sort of a global reorientation of economic uh, power and production. And he, he's going to he's going to try and he's going to do it in the most cynical way possible, because the real basis of his policy is that he's the only one who can do it. So by 1971, then, we were beginning to see what we would call stagflation, the combination of simultaneous high inflation and high unemployment from low growth that would define the economic problems of the 1970s. This combination was outside the conception of the Keynesian economics that dominated the era, which traditionally held that these two trends were mutually exclusive. In August 1971, Nixon implemented a series of actions known as the Nixon Shock to try to alleviate these issues. It was a freeze on wages and prices, import surcharges, and suspending the convertibility of the dollar into gold, ending the gold standard, and unilaterally breaking the Bretton Woods system. Booyah! That this is the end of gold. I feel like when we when we hit these things, it's like raising a raising a jersey to the rafters of like one of these things that has been the chief things argued about in American politics for two centuries, and then you can finally retire that yeah. bit. You had a good run, gold, but now you're gone. Yeah, gold is gone, and that's because gold was always uh, the deficit of uh, of authority in a system. Wherever you had to deposit something outside of the transaction, by the early seventies, the United States had created a globe bestriding colossus of uh, consent and coercion that uh, could uh, defend itself, basically. And gold was sort of no longer necessary to the uh, to the equation, uh, and. What that meant for the U.S. economy is that we were no longer going to be the producer and consumer. We were going to be the consumer of last resort mm -hmm. because uh, we were replacing gold in the abstract with the dollar itself. Uh, and that meant the American economy. That meant the American military that the economy uh, was based on. And that meant uh, the consumption that, that fueled the transactions and that pulled the, the uh, resources through the global the world system uh, and into the final uh, uh, form of profit. Now, the result of this is that uh, the equilibrium that it is, it existed between uh, Americans' uh, salaries uh, and their consumption uh, were coming into conflict because mm -hmm. uh, profits now within the system are – are falling. The, the rate of profit is starting to decline. Uh, and in that context, uh, continued upward pressure of wages uh, is a pressure on profits. Uh, and it leads to uh, inflation. Uh, and Nixon turns to the Keynesian uh, playbook, the only one that was in the room at this point, because Keynesianism had become the dominant economic uh, uh, understanding that powered the whole post-New Deal era, uh, Nixon said even before carrying out wage and price controls, we are all Keynesians now. Uh, <laughs> and what the Keynesian playbook called for was to just put a limit on how much things could cost and how much you could charge for them, uh, which was thoroughly against Republican orthodoxy and the idea that there's uh, uh, things that the government just can't do. But for Nixon, who had no real ideology, what mattered is, is that Putting the lid on things uh, long enough to get him reelected was worth it. It didn't matter if it didn't work in the long term. It didn't matter if it just created uh, pent up inflation that would explode later or shortages or whatever. It would get him uh, across the finish line where he could complete the project in his second term. 
that was Nixon's entire vision was a second term free of uh, the need to get reelected where he could reorient the world economy in a multipolar way without having to worry that the uh, economic blowback domestically would destroy his political career because he would have finally uh, culminated. He would have he would apotheosized. <laughs> And then Nixon goes into the 1972 election popular. Throughout 1972, Nixon held a healthy lead over his opponent, South Dakota Senator George McGovern. The Democratic side of this election is fairly renowned as a slow rolling series of bungles and gaffes. Uh, Matt, feel free to weigh in on any of these. Early Democratic frontrunner Ed Muskie was buffaloed when Nixon's team forged the Canuck Letter insinuating Muskie insulted French Canadians right before the important New England primaries. Muskie later responds to a newspaper allegation against his wife's honor with a tearful defense of her, and he's cooked for being a wimp. McGovern tried to knit together the anti-war, progressive, youth movement-oriented vote into a winning coalition, and for it, his campaign was labeled one of amnesty, abortion, and acid. Though able to pull grassroots support into a successful nomination in the newly centered primary system, McGovern's campaign was hampered by the perception of his extreme progressivism. And then again, when his original running mate, Thomas Eagleton, was revealed to have undergone electroshock therapy for depression, which just became a whole thing and McGovern had to dump Eagleton. And so... Nixon absolutely destroys McGovern in one of the most notorious blowouts in American electoral history. Nixon wins 60.7% of the popular vote and 520 electoral votes to McGovern's puny 17. So McGovern is able to become the the nominee largely because uh, after the 68 convention blowout, the Democratic Party carried out an internal reform uh, to placate uh, all those pissed off kids uh, and to more and to democratize the primary system uh, away from conventions and towards primaries and caucuses. And mm-hmm. that meant that when 72 rolled around, these uh, disaffected kids were able to assert their political uh, uh, will in a way that overcame the organized effective power of the party uh, and were able to seize control at the convention. Now, that led to uh, a split with the party's uh, traditional labor base. Uh, uh, George Meany, the uh, head of the AFL-CIO, refused to endorse the Democratic candidate. This is four years after being the heart and soul of the Humphrey campaign. There was essentially a strike by uh, the old, the machine, uh, the machines and the, u- the unions saying, if you think you don't need us, well, good luck. Uh, and so it was this tenuous coalition of uh, social liberals, basically, uh, who made up the uh, primary support for the, de- the for McGovern? Although he did have some labor support from people who saw his um, critique of capitalism and were uh, affected by it, but you know they were going against the grain of the rest of the the labor movement at that point. Uh, and so between the internal conflict within the party, the bungled Eagleton nomination, they were pretty much at a loss for how to campaign against Nixon. Uh, because Nixon was able to channel all the intervening social turmoil to his benefit. He uh, reached out to Southern whites and others nervous about the impact of, of integration. Uh, he also started the process whereby uh, the social 
pain caused by coming deindustrialization would be met with the uh, coercive stick of uh, the police state in the form of mm-hmm. the beginning of the war on drugs uh, and of the mass incarceration, which would be the solution for the bottom of the social ladder who are going to be uh, immediately impacted by this new end of upward mobility that he was helping to organize. Um, but that made him very appealing to those uh, those homeowning voters, as I said, professionals, uh, workers. What, what mattered is that they were white homeowners. Uh, and then he had actually ended the war. Nobody knew that it was the same deal he, he had shot down in 68. He had actually ended the war. And uh, those things made him very popular. Uh, and so with a divided Democratic Party uh, against this unified silent majority that Nixon talked about, uh, it was a wipeout. Uh, and it was a lot of the same people who had voted for Johnson uh, in 64 out of a confidence uh, in a program that had seen its internal contradictions rip it apart over the past four years. And so then, let's take a minute to take stock of this, what could be seen as a transition point. The end of the post-war boom. The solidification of New Deal gains finally welded into the great society reforms into a hard-fought realization of a truly racially democratic American prosperity. But through all of this, trouble is brewing. The political gains of the working class slowly being bought off through middle-class consumption. The gains of the civil rights movement, a virtual second emancipation, immediately bringing about a new wave of conservative reaction. America taking its place as the headquarters of global imperial capital and immediately straining under the domestic and international contradiction that position carried with it. But right now, it's 1972 and everyone loves Dick. Nixon's leadership has been triumphantly affirmed until, of course, we find a suspicious piece of tape on the door of a certain room in the Watergate Hotel. Today happens to be the anniversary of what appeared at first to be a minor burglary at an office complex in Washington called the Watergate. A small crime in itself, but the arrest of those burglars lifted the lid on the nation's worst political scandal. Now, in the light of the Watergate affair, that in my years of public life, that I welcome this kind of examination because people have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. Watergate resists easy summary. The vast cast of Nixon White House creeps, investigating politicians and journalists, and let's say the slow burn accumulation of events and revelations between the bungled break-in of June 17, 1972, and Nixon's resignation on August 9, 1974, has obviously been the subject of innumerable examinations, fictionalizations, and reassessments. So for our sake, we'll just say... On June 17, 1972, individuals associated with the Nixon White House's Committee for the Re-Election of the President were arrested breaking into the Watergate Hotel, location of the Democratic National Committee's offices. Though Nixon was probably not aware of the initial break-in plot, efforts to cover up the burglar's relation to the White House and subsequent use of executive authority to stymie investigations would eventually lead to impeachment hearings, a collapse in support for Nixon, and Nixon's resignation on August 9, 1974. So then, Matt, what can we take away from this? I think inarguably the greatest presidential scandal of American history in terms of what it says about the presidency. So there's two broad theories of Watergate. 
There's the official story in which Nixon, the president, brought is brought down by his own insane paranoia and overreach. Uh, and then there's uh, another uh, version where Nixon uh, is brought down by his justified paranoia. Uh, <laughs> no matter which theory you subscribe to, Watergate was the final check on presidential ambition. Now, theoretically, the president of the United States at this point is the most powerful person in the world in every sense of that term. Uh, and that wasn't true for the vast majority of American presidents. We're talking about somebody who is able to end all life on Earth. The CEO of a global system of economic, military, and cultural power. But this, the system that they were head of is, and that they had been democratically empowered by, uh, is administered through uh, structures that exist outside of presidential control. Uh, and Nixon tried to challenge this establishment by operating independently of it. Uh, his entire foreign policy. Uh, which was the focus of his presidency, was run out not of the State Department or the Pentagon or the National Security Council, but out of uh, Henry Kissinger's office. It was Nixon and Kissinger dictating America's foreign policy. So that strategy of power either opened up a Pandora's box of cascading bungles as Nixon tried to exercise his power outside of bureaucratic control, or that establishment power structure pushed back to neutralize the wild card Nixon. Nixon, he was operating in what he felt was the best interest of the system as he understood it. But the whole point of the system is that it cannot be defined by an individual mind. And Nixon is the last president to enter office with any real ambition to shape the American destiny. From now on, everyone in that chair will have gotten the message and are going to be happy to fit themselves into whatever shape power demands. Good evening. We have a mystery story out of Washington. Five people have been arrested and charged with breaking into the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee in the middle of the night. The Democratic National Committee is located in the Watergate office building. The burglars forced a stairwell door, then taped its latch open. The door, now part of police evidence, was noticed by one of the guards. There's a bungled uh, break-in. Either it's because these guys don't know what they're doing or because the CIA has told them to fuck it up, to bring Nixon down. Either way, that what, what comes out of that is a uh, series of reports in the Washington Post and then a series of investigations in the House and Senate. Uh, and it's very important to remember that at this point, the House and Senate are still heavily Democratic. The old uh, New Deal coalition was still being replicated at the ballot box at the state and local level because that's where it lingers much faster than at the presidential level. And as a result... Uh, there was a partisan motivation that was added to this sort of systemic pushback against Nixon. Uh, it was good politics for Democrats to uh, try to uh, pursue this. And it's a reason that uh, people kept mashing the impeachment button with Trump and expecting something to happen. <laughs> and it never did. And it's because you did not have that kind of partisan control of the process. But the end of Watergate, Nixon's resignation in the face of impeachment threats, is a liberal fantasy uh, that really did serve to um, solidify their faith in a system that had been deeply undermined by the, the events of the past uh, decade. Uh, assassinations, uh, secret wars uh, carried out with lies, and now a, an unrestrained madman in the White House. All of those uh, could be contained within this systemic response to Nixon that proved that things still work. 
And so Nixon leaves office. Truly, none of us will have Nixon to kick around anymore. Gerald Ford is our ultimate, I wasn't even supposed to be here today, president. Leslie Lynch King Jr. was born on July 14th, 1913 in Omaha, Nebraska. Due to domestic violence, his mother, Dorothy Gardner, left his birth father shortly after his birth and relocated to Grand Rapids, Michigan, remarrying Gerald Rudolph Ford in 1917. And young Leslie became Gerald R. Ford Jr., Gerald then went on to become an All-American boy, an Eagle Scout, and then a college linebacker, taking the University of Michigan Wolverines to national titles in 1932 and 33. Ford then went to Yale Law School, where he also coached the Yale football team. Ford enlisted in the Naval Reserves after the Pearl Harbor attack. Uh, Ford was eventually deployed to an aircraft carrier in the Pacific Theater. And also between training, his aircraft carrier deployment, and subsequent reassignments, the Navy always made sure to put him in charge of troop athletics on his assignments. Just a gridiron guy all the way through. Ford returned to Michigan, now committed to U.S. interventionalism through his wartime experiences, and sought to unseat his isolationist Republican congressman. He did in 1948 and served in the House of Representatives for the next 25 years. He gained a reputation as a real lunch pail congressman, never spearheading major legislation, but diligently handling his committee assignments and steadily pursuing becoming Speaker of the House, eventually making it to House Minority Leader in 1965. In 1973, Ford was preparing to run for Congress for what he thought would be his last term, hoping Republicans would finally get a House majority and he would then be Speaker. Then, in the middle of the Watergate affair, Vice President Spiro Agnew was drummed out of office over a Baltimore County bribery scandal from back when he was the governor of Maryland. Nixon looked to congressional Republican leadership for who should replace Agnew, and Ford was the only choice. Ford was sworn in on December 6th, 1973. And on August 9th, 1974, before the Fords even had a chance to move into the vice presidential residence, Nixon resigned and Ford was president. Ford is the only person to serve as president, not elected as either president or vice president. Yeah, it's uh, it's a very interesting uh, development with Ford because Spiro Agnew, Nixon's vice president, really was the next logical iteration uh, of the head of the Republican Party after that. He was Nixon's Nixon. He was his hatchet man, the hatchet man's <laughs> hatchet man, uh, the guy who who waged a culture war most viciously. Uh, but he was because he was Nixon's Nixon also uh, corrupt as shit and slightly uh, worse at covering it up. So he had to resign before Nixon did. Uh, and so Nixon uh, sought the establishment candidate, which was this hunk of granite from Michigan uh, who was going to put a damper on the acceleration uh, of, of the presidential uh, role uh, in heightening culture war uh, and fall all over the place and just be generally the least memorable man on earth. He very much is sort of like uh, Joe Biden in that it is the guy who's brought in to cool down the tempers after everything's gotten so dang hot. Uh, there's only so much the system can take. Let's all relax with uh, President President Ford. No way you can get too upset one way or the other. So Ford inherited a deteriorating situation from Nixon on the economy, the international outlook, and most immediately from Nixon himself. Within a month of assuming office, 
Ford issued a full and unconditional pardon for Nixon for any crimes he may have committed while in office. This was immediately hugely controversial. Ford's press secretary resigned in protest, and there were accusations of a new corrupt bargain having been struck, including from now nationally famous Bob Woodward. Ford was made to testify before Congress about the decision, and, riding the scandal and unpopular pardon, Democrats won huge congressional gains in the 1974 midterm elections. Yeah, so this is the, as I said, the capper on it, uh, because, you know, Nixon had gone too far, he had straight outside the lines, and he needed to be, uh, have his knuckles wrapped, uh, but he also, at the end of the day, uh, played by the rules in that he uh, accepted the writing when it was on the wall, uh, and he needed to be uh, rewarded for that uh, as, again, uh, instruction for the future presidents, that, that there was always an out, that they would never have to give up the, uh, the comforts of a post-presidential life. There would never be any real accountability for anything they did in office. Ford would then have the difficult and uh, currently relevant again role of overseeing America's final departure from Vietnam. The Paris Peace Accords had been signed under Nixon in January 1973, resulting in a ceasefire and pledging the withdrawal of U.S. forces. By December 1974, North Vietnamese forces once again began advancing into the South. With American interests in the war completely exhausted, Ford was unable to secure an aid package for Vietnam. And on April 29th and 30th, 1975, thousands of U.S. citizens and Vietnamese nationals were airlifted out of Saigon as the capital finally fell to the People's Army of Vietnam and the Viet Cong. Uh, I would have to say that that Nixon got his decent interval. Uh, (laughs) At the time, there was a lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth. There was a a refugee crisis that became a political uh, hot button for the next few years. But it, it never overwhelmed the political system. Uh, it didn't even really stick around Ford that much by the time he ran for re-election. So uh, you got to imagine that if it had happened uh, in Nixon's second term, he probably would have considered it uh, mission accomplished. Domestically, the economy under Ford was suffering under the ongoing inflation crisis. By 1974, the U.S. inflation rate was 11.04%. While the average rate between 1974 and 2021 is about 3.7%. And from 1974 to 1975, the unemployment rate would rise from 5.1 to 8.1%. Ford would respond to this with the incredibly goofy Whip Inflation Now or Win campaign. Uh, Basically just a PR campaign passing out bumper stickers and buttons asking Americans to take care of this themselves by reducing consumption. Yes, so we have now entering onto the political field the domestic boogeyman of the 70s, inflation, uh, something that had not really been an issue uh, in the previous generation uh, and was now the defining uh, reality uh, of life in America. Things were getting more expensive. Wages were not rising to meet them, uh, and life was becoming more expensive. That, that middle-class life that people were pursuing was becoming harder to live. Uh, and there were a number of explanations that were offered uh, by the uh, economic and political class. Uh, the idea that it was the hangover from Vietnam War spending and the Great Society social spending. Uh, the fact that the ra- wage and price control uh, under Nixon had been rescinded and that had led to an explosion of, of pent up inflation. But all of those were happening in whatever order because of the underlying reality of a falling rate of profit. 
that is continuing as as the uh, reordering of the global economy uh, accelerates. And because of the capitalist nature of the two parties uh, and also the interests of the allegedly apolitical administrative apparatus, the policymakers are going to flail around looking for things to blame uh, so that they can conjure solutions, uh, all of which are on the basis of contradictions that they are incapable of seeing and addressing. Ford also dealt with the fallout of the 1973 and 1974 oil embargo and the ongoing gas crisis. The embargo, led by Saudi Arabia, had been enacted to affect Israel's allies during the 1973 Arab-Israeli War and exacerbated by America's declining oil production and increasing reliance on foreign oil through the late 60s and early 70s. Between 1973 and 1974, gas prices rose from an average of 39 cents a gallon to 53 cents. So the underpinning of the uh, consumer de bonanza of the American economy for the past 20 years had been cheap energy. Uh, and the uh, early 70s saw a drastic and permanent repricing of energy uh, that uh, changed the equation for America's economy at, at a fundamental level uh, and helped drive uh, inflation uh, and the rising of prices across the board. And that economic order had been powered by cheap oil extracted from tractable client states. Now, the necessity of building a viable international system in the face of communism had been empowering these oil producing states and created th- and the creation of things like OPEC. And that organization of interests there took a big chunk out of the profit in the American system, extracted a bunch of money uh, into the uh, global economy. And this created the petrodollar, which uh, is what replaced uh, the gold backed dollar uh, as the basis for the world uh, economic system. Now, in this system, Americans still have to consume, but that consumption is going to be more expensive. Uh, and this is going to be this is going to require a reordering of the American political economy. Uh, which is to say that it was ineffective. Yeah. Um, but we'll get more into that. Yeah, they tried, uh, yeah, like rationing and it shit. Yeah. yeah. That's where you got the lines at the gas stations. They was, I think they probably tapped the uh, the reserve, too, like the U.S. Yeah. oil reserve. Yeah, rationing had started late in the Nixon administration, and Nixon did stuff like initiate the first national speed limit to help control gas prices, uh, while Ford created the Strategic Petroleum Reserve in 1975. But still, inflation persists. Yeah. Also, Chevy Chase made fun of him falling down on SNL a bunch, and two ladies tried to shoot him. Uh, the assassination attempts were by Manson girl Squeaky Frome and deranged FBI informant Sarah Jane Moore. Uh, but Ford successfully broke the chain of people just walking up and shooting the president in American history by narrowly dodging each shot. And I mean, really, who's going to assass- try to assassinate poor Gerald Ford? I mean, one of them, the gun wasn't even loaded. So Ford goes into the election of 1976 at a disadvantage. Inflation and the gas crisis are still the underlying issues here, but the superficial topic is restoring dignity to the White House. And to that end, Ford was weakened by his Nixon pardon, as well as lack of movement in the economy. And that leaves a window open for a political outsider. James Earl Carter Jr. was born October 1st, 1924 in Plains, Georgia. His father owned a general store in some farmland, and Jimmy grew up in a fairly rural life. 
After graduating high school and briefly attending Georgia Institute of Technology, Jimmy enrolled in the U.S. Naval Academy. And can I just pause here for a second to comment on all our president's preferences for the Navy? Of the post-war guys, Kennedy, LBJ, Nixon, Ford, and Carter, to the extent that they had any military experience, were all Navy or Naval Reserve. Uh, what's up with that? I, I guess if you're like kind of smart and ambitious and want some military adventure, but don't want to be like actively shot at, you go with the boats. Yeah, it's also I think the most like leisure time you get to chill and, you know, that gives you time to scheme. Yes, exactly. So uh, if you're wanting to be president, uh, Naval Reserve, I know Pete Buttigieg knows that. So Jimmy goes off to the Naval Academy and does pretty well there, graduating after World War II in 1946, serving in the Atlantic and Pacific, and eventually training to be a submarine officer. He then entered training in the new nuclear submarine program, learning basic nuclear plant operations and even assisting in the cleanup of a partially melted down nuclear reactor. But before he could take his nuclear submarine assignment, Jimmy's father died and he was released from service to take over the family peanut farm in 1953. Back in Plains, Jimmy slowly grew the peanut business, starting from having to live in public housing in Plains to become a successful member of the local community. In 1962, he ran for and won a seat in the Georgia State Senate, where he was a Kennedyite moderate anti-segregationist. In 1966, he ran for Georgia governor, not only losing, but splitting Georgia's liberal and moderate Democratic votes and allowing a segregationist Democrat to win in a runoff. After his loss, Jimmy immediately began planning a 1970 run, but also became increasingly religious, becoming a born-again Christian in the late 1960s. Carter ran a cynically conservative and racist campaign for governor in 1970, then immediately pivoting to moderation and advocating equality once elected. He charted a generally moderate path, working to reduce Georgia state deficit, expanding state aid to education in poorer areas, expanding appointments of blacks to state positions, establishing a Georgia Human Rights Council, but also co-sponsoring anti-busing actions with George Wallace. Georgia limited its governors to one term, and so leaving office in 1974, on December 12th of that year, he declared his candidacy for president. So it's 1976, and old Jimmy's really still a fairly obscure figure in national politics. Some attempts to ingratiate himself into Democratic National Committee assignments aside, he was still just a one-term moderate governor of Georgia. So how does he go so far in 76? So obviously the, uh, the material reality of, uh, on the ground in 76 is this, these, these earthquakes of, uh, of disruption, of, of, of felt uh, alteration of uh of people's relationship to to uh their lives what 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 money was going to buy uh what their future was going to hold uh but since neither party could address those uh what the election ended up being about was about uh the soul of the nation uh in the mm -hmm. aftermath of watergate but not just watergate uh, uh there was at the uh, leading up to the 76 election the church committee uh which was a senate a committee uh, charged with uh, investigating the horrifying intelligence community uh, violations that had characterized the uh, deep state response to the 60s youth movement uh, and civil rights movement in the form of COINTELPRO, foreign assassinations. Uh, and it was all overseen by uh, Idaho Senator Frank Church. And Church, among a large number of other Democrats, ran for president in 76. Uh, and his hope was that he could be the face of uh, reform, 
uh, of the uh, national security state that had so horrifically gone uh, off the rails. Uh, but it turns out that the implications of such a reckoning were just too much for most Democratic voters to really grasp. Uh, what they ended up coming around to was the idea of uh, purging all of that guilt and anxiety about a, the nation's sins uh, by uh, subsuming themselves into the figure of a J Jimmy Carter, uh, who embodied personal virtue as an antidote to political corruption, who would obviate the need for some sort of deep reckoning with America's imperial state, uh, because he would represent all of us in his virtue, in his literal Christian born-again virtue. And he started off as a very marginal figure, but he was able to parlay... Um, Media appearances, uh, such as going on What's My Line, and then building a very powerful early network uh, in the Iowa caucuses, which at that point was really more of a fundraising mechanism for the Democratic Party. Uh, it was not a real powerful or meaningful primary, uh, but it was the first one. Uh, and Carter made a move to essentially move to Iowa, uh, campaign there and until he'd met everybody in the state and then use that uh, while everybody else is bouncing around the country. Uh, he concentrated his forces in Iowa, secured a surprise victory and launched himself uh, into the public eye. And he was able to take that early media hit uh, and turn it into a campaign identity and brand around virtue. He, he, he said, and he said in a way that people actually believed, I will never lie to you. Uh, and it helped him uh, secure the nomination. So, yes, one of my favorite bits of uh, presidential ephemera is that basically every person who runs for president now needs to be photographed in Iowa eating the pork chop on the stick. Got to do and it. And I would like to thank Jimmy Carter for making that a reality. We love the pork chop on the stick. It was delicious. Mwah. Meanwhile, on the Republican side, Gerald Ford was fending off an uprising from the conservative wing of the party now embodied in TV presenter, radio host, and former California governor Ronald Reagan, who had begun openly calling for a conservative revolution in the party at the second annual Conservative Political Action Conference in 1975, then formally entering the primaries in November. So Reagan is the, the next surge of the uh, Taft-Goldwater wing as it f grasps for power. Uh, they'd been managed by Nixon, uh, but by 76, this figure of uh, Reagan, that this uh, this actor uh, who could who could stand on a mark and say his lines uh, became the embodiment of a movement that was headquartered by insurgent capital. Um, and there these people saw the GOP as the enemy. They condemned Ford for his detente with the Soviets. The, the 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 multilateralism that Kissin that Nixon and Kissinger saw as uh, inevitable and necessary, uh, the the resentments of the fifties and sixties had been sharpened by the increased pace of social change and the decline of uh, living standards. Uh, there was a genuine sense uh, that the line needed to be drawn, uh, and if that meant going to a nuclear war with the Soviets, then so be it. And that sort of death drive was personified in the genial figure of Ronald Reagan, who uh, made a strong push for the nomination, uh, fought, slugged it out with Ford in the primaries, uh, and went to, to the convention 
um, with a chance for the nomination. In fact, this is the last time that a uh, pre- that a major party uh, convention will convene without a clear and determined nominee. Uh, but Ford essentially utilized his power in the office, his patronage influence to to lean on those he needed to lean on. Uh, and he was able to secure the nomination uh, with the assumption being uh, among basically everybody in the room that this was the last gasp of the establishment and that next time uh, the right was going to secure the nomination. So with the nominees locked and the state primary system now firmly taking precedence over convention machinations for selecting candidates, Ford and Carter duke it out in the general. Carter's initial lead slowly tightened, especially after a series of televised debates where both candidates had weaknesses exposed. In a very tight election, Carter's ability to bring the South into the Dem coalition for the last time, plus narrow victories in a handful of northern now swing states like Pennsylvania and Ohio, sealed the deal. In the end, Carter carried 50.1% of the popular vote and 297 electors to Ford's 240. He would say in his inauguration, We have learned that more is not necessarily better. That even our great nation has its recognized limits. And that we can neither answer all questions nor solve all problems. We cannot afford to do everything, nor can we afford to like boldness as we meet the future. So together, in a spirit of individual sacrifice for the common good, we must simply do our best. Jimmy Carter's term is a point of acute transition for the Democratic Party and America as a whole. Carter was faced with the ever-increasing issues of stagflation, coupled with a weak coalition, basically buoyed into office by his favorite son status among the southern states that were increasingly out of the Democratic coalition. The Carter administration sees a Democratic president operating with a new, more limited set of tools, a Democratic politics unable to address material conditions, lashed to the market and separated from the mass movements, especially the labor movement, that had driven its politics for basically half a century. This is the end of the New Deal as a driving philosophy. And now we see an increased reliance on markets over government intervention, renewed focus on balanced budgets, and the emphasis of inflation over unemployment as the prime economic problem to be solved. So, Matt, tell me about the Carter administration. So, Jimmy Carter comes into office, uh, a man who, in his own mind and in the minds of the people who elected him, an embodiment of personal virtue, which has now replaced uh, any sort of uh, party policy or platform because such things are now considered the grubby a uh, result of transactional politics that had been, for many Democratic voters, uh, discredited by the crises and failures of the last uh, 10 years. Uh, and so Carter comes into office with a sincere desire to confront the problems of the moment, but uh, the only tools he has to do so uh, are the broken Keynesian consensus that needed to be uh, rebuilt. It, unemployment and inflation were thought to be uh, mutually exclusive uh, in Keynesian theory. And as a result, there was no consensus among uh, the post-New Deal economic intelligentsia on what to do about it. Uh, 
the new challenge to it was uh, the monetarism of uh, Milton Friedman, which said that there was just too much money in this in out in circulation, that money had to be uh, tightened, and that the result of that would have to be a reduction of America's standard of living, that America was consuming uh, simply too much. Now, it's possible that there could have been a redistribution of consumption downward and that the people who had not yet benefited from America's uh, middle-class bonanza could get access to it. But at this point, they were functionally without uh, representation in the halls of power uh, or in uh, the meaningful bureaucratic offices. Uh, and so the only answer that could come would be the uh, the breaking of the covenant between labor and capital that had presided since the end of World War II that ensured rising wages over time uh, and that this action would allow for the uh, preservation of profit within the system uh, and the prevention of it being eaten by, uh, by wages over time. Uh, now, the reason that this is, this becomes the conventional wisdom and not only the conventional wisdom for guys like Carter, the virtuous and right thing to do uh, is because by this point there are no one, there is no one representing uh, the American people uh, as workers uh, in the halls of power. Uh, the democratic party was now the province of suburban professionals. Uh, the labor union leadership was fully compromised by their relationship to power, the rank and file still had some fire within them. And we see during the 70s a massive wave of wildcat strikes, unlike anything seen since the late 40s, uh, but detached from uh, an effective labor organization, uh, detached now from the Democratic Party, they're unable to uh, effectively assert their power. Uh, and so Carter resigns over a regime of austerity, the centerpiece of which was the uh, appointment of Paul Volcker to the uh, office of the uh, Federal Reserve Chairman, this unpolitical officer who would do the technocratic job of drastically reducing mon the money supply by drastically raising interest rates, a shock to the economic system. And along with this, uh, efficiency uh, increased through massive deregulation of essentially er every major American uh, internal industry from trucking to airlines to beer, uh, the pitch being that it would make it more affordable for consumers uh, if there was less regulation within an industry. Uh, that didn't end up happening, but more <laughs> profits were accessible at the top. Uh, at one point, Carter actually tries to introduce credit controls. The wage and price controls had been uh, discredited by events. Uh, and Carter was horrified by the prospect of utilizing something that was shown not to work. But instead, they attempted to limit the amount of credit that people could access. They essentially, by the middle of Carter's term, had a policy of inducing a recession on purpose. It should be noted that this era was also the uh, transition into investing rather than saving as the primary consumer use of their of their wages and, and save funds. Uh, you know, this is the beginning of credit cards as a national phenomenon and the, yes. the introduction of money market mutual funds and savings and investment instruments like that available to everyday consumers. So yet yeah, this is the beginning of credit and debt as an instrument for consumers. 
Yes. Uh, to fill in for those uh, no longer rising wages. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not like there was no uh, alternative to this. There was, but by this point, uh, that uh, New Deal Great Society Coalition was a shadow of its former self, uh, and it was represented in the form of the Humphrey Hawkins Full Employment Bill, uh, which was uh, the brainchild and, and long-term baby of uh, former Vice President uh, Hubert Humphrey, which sought to create a job guarantee uh, as an alternative to austerity. Uh, but no one in the Carter administration had any faith in it. It smacked of the old failed ideology. Uh, they actively hindered its progress through uh, the through the House and Senate. And when it was finally passed, it was completely uh, toothless uh, and uh, meaningless and powerless. And that really was the the last gasp uh, of the labor uh, reform tradition in the Democratic Party. Uh, and Carter was very happy to uh, to see it go down to uh, irrelevance. And at the same time this is happening, a cultural revolution is exploding uh, out of these new conditions of precarity. The single family in the single income household that had uh, been the bedrock of the post-war social order was no longer sustainable in many places, which meant women were entering the workforce in unprecedented numbers, which was creating uh, its own uh, social ferment. Uh, Federal funding was going into desegregating Southern schools. Busing was being utilized to integrate uh, geographically segregated schools in the North. Uh, And this was creating a huge amount of social anger, uh, alienation, uh, resistance to social change, all in a context where none of this pain is being assuaged by the prosperity and comforts that had accompanied previous moments of uh, social ferment. But Carter's pitch to the American people uh, on how to manage this declining standard of living was for them to decrease their consumption, to act out of a new social virtue of denial and, and to seek meaning outside uh, of, of comfort and consumption. Uh, and of course, the hilarity of this is that Carter is asking people to find meaning outside the market. Uh, without giving them any way to seek that meaning Mm -hmm. because their lives are still fully alienated. Most of them are working jobs that are unfulfilling uh, and robotic. Uh, All that they have been given as an outlet for their expression of themselves has been the market. And Carter is now telling them to sacrifice the few remaining uh, strands of, of uh, self expression they have. Um, Now that now, of course, the, the darkest irony of all is that this pitch is designed uh, as, a, as a virtuous sacrifice for the greater good. But in reality, what it is, is it is a it is a ritual sacrifice uh, on behalf of corporate profits. Now, just some of the ticky tacky stuff the Carter administration attempts. He tries to solve the continuing gas, energy and inflation crises through a number of proposals. Uh, Carter's administration is notorious for its technocratic bend. Yeah. Proposals that Carter brought to Congress would be huge and comprehensive. Yep. His energy bill had 113 points. The point was to try to bring whole deals at once to avoid them getting broken up into chunks and getting laden by pork barrel spending from lobbyist influences. This, of course, happens anyway, significantly diluting the proposals, and nothing gets done. So every move he makes, in addition to just asking for the spiritual sacrifice of the people, gets transformed into some kind of seemingly feckless proposal that goes nowhere. 
And Carter ends up looking not only like someone who's asking you to bear the burden of your own problems, but someone who will do nothing from the top to help. And yet so, even as the president urged the sweaterification of the American worker, by 1980, the economic situation had gotten even worse. As we look forward to the 1980 election, on November 4th, 1979, a group of armed Iranian college students took 52 Americans hostage in the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. By 1980, dissatisfaction with Carter had grown from conservative Republicans to members of his own party. And by late 1979, Massachusetts Senator Ted Kennedy announced he would mount a primary challenge to Carter. Yes, if uh, Humphrey Hawkins is like the sunset of uh, the New Deal, then the Kennedy uh, campaign is just that little green flash at the end before the night finally descends. Kennedy just, uh, he had no organization really. Uh, he really didn't even have much of a campaign. All he had was his own sort of egotistic investment in the ideas. Uh, and that was enough, given his status, you know, uh, and uh, his relationship to the Kennedy name, uh, that lots of other people who were feeling that resentment and alienation from a party that had drifted away from those uh, values uh, was activated. And, and he did get uh, a lot of early support. Uh, and a lot of people thought he was going to be a real uh, challenge to Carter. But despite early enthusiasm for Kennedy, some campaign flubs, including a notoriously disastrous TV interview with Roger Mudd, weakened his candidacy. And coupled with a surge in support around Carter's handling of the early days of the Iran hostage crisis, allowed Carter to nab key early primary victories and eventually beat Kennedy to win 36 out of 48 primaries and cinch the nomination. And then on the Republican side... Ronald Reagan is back, and with relatively little opposition, nabs the nomination. The conservative revolution of the Republican Party, which had been seeded with Robert Taft in 1952, met with disaster in Goldwater's 1964 presidential campaign, had now finally won the day. So Jimmy Carter's pitch to the American people was designed by and for this new activist face of the party well-off college-educated professionals who embraced liberalism for its social values and viewed organized labor mostly as just another interest group within capitalism. Their jobs were stimulating. Their lives are relatively easy. The challenge of living with less, uh, uh, an invigorating adventure. Uh, but for people who work unpleasant or mundane jobs, those unable to assert control over the pace or nature of their work, for those people, consumption had become the only means of expressing control over their lives. And Carter wanted them to be thrifty and to find meaning outside of the shopping mall, but offering no respite from an economy that alienated from their people from their labor and then sold them consolation prizes. Carter imagined that his honesty and his virtue would be rewarded by the voters, never imagining that someone would present an alternative vision of continued <laughs> prosperity and upward mobility based on bullshit. What? <laughs> Just lying to people? But, but no one could do that. But, it, but even if it happened, surely the American people would see through it. And so Reagan, armed with a message of blinding patriotic optimism, Increased military spending to make America strong. Decreased taxes to put money in your wallet. Balanced budget for responsible government you can trust was a model of strength and certainty against Doomer Carter. It all boiled down to one question. Are you better off than you were four years ago? 
Are you better off now than you were four years ago? I'm just kidding. I'll have to work on my rig. <laughs> well, are you, well, better, you better off, off than you were now. four years ago? The answer for most was no. And Reagan won in a landslide, a margin of almost 10% of the popular vote and 489 to 49 in the Electoral College. Really, if there was a crisis of confidence, who better to embody confidence than an actor? Almost like he's some kind of confidence man? <laughs> I don't know. That's, that's pretty sweaty. But uh, join us next week for the Reagan Revolution. Hell of Presidents is produced by me, Chris Wade, with our co-editor, Nick Quaz. Our theme music is by Nick Diamonds. Additional music for this episode by Tyrant King, whose music can be found at soundcloud.com slash tyrantkingmusic. Our episode art is, as always, by Branson Reese. Come back next week for Star Wars, Golf Wars, and to find out what the definition of is is. <laughs> <laughs>